and welcome to 1867 and all that. Episode 16, Reform Ascendant. Last day, we ended with a death and a new beginning. With the unfortunate accident that befell Lord Sydenham, the Governor-General who had come to Canada in the aftermath of the rebellions, tasked with the job of recreating representative government in the new United Province of Canada. Now he came as Charles Thompson, pushed through the Union, was then made Lord Sydenham, saw through one session of the legislature, and then, just when he could probably expect to retire back to England and collect the accolades for a job well done, well, just then he went and fell off a horse. Bye-bye, Lord Sydenham. A day after Sydenham died, Louis-Hippolyte Lafontaine was sworn into office. Having just been elected, not in his home province of Lower Canada, but away in the West, in the frosty Protestant confines of Upper Canada, or Canada West as it was now called. It was a kind of political miracle worked out by Robert Baldwin and the reformers of Upper Canada, meant to help establish a new United Reform Party. Now, this new United Reform Party was essentially the antithesis of the governing coalition that Lord Sydenham had created in the Canadas during his time as Governor-General. Sydenham had spent his time in the Canadas creating a, a governor's party of moderates. He tried to forestall the creation of a party system itself, to draw in moderate reformers and Tories alike. And if it meant excluding French Canadians, at least for the moment, well then, so be it. Because the other main task of the Union was, of course, to assimilate the French. But now with Sydenham dead and Lafontaine elected to the Assembly, everything was in flux. For the moment, there was a temporary acting governor in place, Sir Richard Downs Jackson, head of the British military in North America. But he wasn't especially interested in politics and you know, probably only just a placeholder. And so the question hung in the air. What would happen when the new governor arrived? Would the Sydenham system survive? Or would a united reform party, built across the divide between French and English, be able to wrest control away from the governor? And maybe even more importantly, if it did, would we have in the Canadas the first party government and perhaps the first truly responsible government? Sir Charles Bagot came to the Canadas as Governor-General of British North America, already possessed of a lifetime of diplomatic experience. In fact, his coming was a kind of return in that he had served as British Ambassador to the United States in the immediate aftermath of the War of 1812. In fact, this was one of the reasons he was coming back. London was concerned about the Americans. In the early 1840s, the United States was heaving with expansionist ambition. A new American president was considering annexing Texas, which had only recently claimed independence from Mexico. Other Americans were calling for war with Britain, angry at boundary disputes between New Brunswick and Maine on the one hand, and then in the far western Oregon Territory, where the United States bumped up against British Hudson's Bay Company claims. And so Bagot was seen as a useful calming presence. As ambassador in Washington after the War of 1812, Bagot had somehow managed to make himself popular and well-liked by many in Washington. 
and he'd even managed to settle an important treaty in 1817 to which he gave his name, the Rush Baggage Agreement, which partially demilitarized the Great Lakes, limiting the size and number of naval vessels that each country would sail on these shared and treacherous inland waterways. Baggett went on to serve in St. Petersburg and also at The Hague, where he helped, in fact, uh, in that culturally divided land to negotiate the separation of Belgium from the Netherlands. In 1828, he even turned down an invitation to be Governor General of India. And so he came to the Canadas, in other words, with a good deal of diplomatic experience, though not so much in the realms of parliamentary politics, and it remained to be seen how he would handle the machinations of colonial politicians in this post rebellion divided colony. In England, the Whigs had just been defeated after more than a decade in power, and the Conservatives came to office under Robert Peel. Peel, of course, was the father of modern policing and a rather unique conservative. As we'll see in later episodes, he was open to the newly emerging doctrines of free trade that were sweeping England in the 1840s. In sending Bagot to the Canadas, Peel's government knew that it was facing a rather delicate situation. Lord Sydenham claimed to have created a perfect system of colonial governance, but Peel and his colonial secretary, Lord Stanley, couldn't be so sure. In seeking out advice on what instructions to send with Bagot, Peel heard from one of Lord Durham's advisors, a man named Charles Buller, who told him that whomever they sent must be a humane, just man who will have the liberality and good sense to raise up whom we have been forced to put down. And if that wasn't clear, he added, I allude especially to the French. So these were the instructions Bagot received. He was told to look to all classes of people in the colonies, to not show preference for religion or background. The only key ingredient, the only passport to access to the governor ought to be loyalty to the queen. But this didn't mean that Bagot was to be a walkover. Bagot was told to move the legislature and the population away from, quote, abstract and theoretical questions, by which London meant questions of the constitution and democracy, about this abstract idea of responsible government. Instead, they instructed Bagot to focus on practical measures for the improvement and advancement of the internal prosperity of the colony. In other words, get to work, make the locals rich, get them focused on canals and roads and economic development. There was also in Bagot's instructions some advice that he was going to find it very hard to follow, but it was there nonetheless. This was to do with party government, and it bore directly on the kinds of issues Lafontaine and Baldwin had been pushing for in their attempts to create a new United Reform Party. The colonial secretary told Bagot that informing his executive, he should call on, quote, the advice and services of the ablest men without reference to distinction of local party. And in fact, the creation of parties was something Bagot was instructed to do his utmost to discourage. Now that was going to prove tricky. Bagot received his appointment in September of 1841, just after Sydenham's accident, and he set out for London later in the autumn. But he was to arrive after the freeze-up in December, so he couldn't land in the ice-locked ports of British North America. Instead, he came via New York and then 
overland, or really over ice and snow, in a heavily laden sleigh covered with furs. We finally arrived in the little capital of Kingston, crossing the frozen St. Lawrence from the American side on January 10, 1842. He was hopeful on the arrival, maybe a little too hopeful. theory, the new governor inherited his predecessor's government. This was led by the moderate reformer Samuel Harrison, who had proposed the vaguer responsible government motion back in the assembly in September, and by the moderate Tory William Henry Draper. There shouldn't have been a problem keeping this coalition together and moving forward. If anything, Sydenham seemed to have won over some converts before his death. Perhaps his greatest convert seemed to be Francis Hinks, the radical reformer who had started the correspondence with Lafontaine, hoping to build a reform coalition, had been impressed by Sydenham's willingness to simply get things done, to promote practical improvements in the country. In that first session, Hinks had partially turned away from Baldwin and the ultra-reformers. And before his death, Sydenham had planned to bring Hinks into his government to sit on the executive. After six weeks in the colony, Bagot wrote back to London with optimistic claims about his prospects. The province was tranquil, he boasted. From all parts of the colony, he'd received messages of goodwill, with Canadians professing a willingness to work for the betterment of the colony and to put aside party differences. With all of six weeks' experience under his belt, Bagot claimed that there wasn't anything like the strong party differences in the Canadas as there was back at home. In this, of course, he was partly correct but only partly so. The opposition to his government was divided, made up of groups that seemed to have nothing in common. There were the old compact Tories, led by those like Alan McNabb, who had almost nothing in common with the ultra-reformers around Robert Baldwin. And then there was the large group of French Canadians who were conservative, but quite unlike the family compact conservatives. Bagot thought, not unreasonably, but quite incorrectly, that any combination between these forces would be an unnatural alliance, as he put it. All through the winter and spring, Bagot sought to win over allies to his cause. He especially wanted the support of French Canadians. If only he could bring in some modest support from Canada East, his government could claim a greater legitimacy. And so he set about wooing the French. When he announced various government posts that year, he went out of his way to include a substantial number of French Canadians to various civil posts. He left Kingston to visit Montreal and Quebec on a friend-finding mission. It helped that Bagot was fluently bilingual and his friendliness was noticed and appreciated. But nothing seemed to do the trick. Soon he was writing back to England to voice his frustration. The biggest problem is that the French Canadians in the assembly acted as a group. It was impossible to win away any particular leader who could bring with him any others. If you brought one member onto the executive, and even this was a big if, then that was all you had, just one member. Now, it might not have mattered if other members of the assembly could only get along. But as Bagot prepared to meet the assembly again in the autumn of 1842, he found that the other members of the assembly were divided against one another. 
the Conservatives of Canada West couldn't get along with the Conservatives of Montreal and Canada East. The ultra-reformers annoyed all the Conservatives and couldn't even always get along with the other reformers. The only group that really and consistently acted as a party was the French Canadians. Bagot tried to square the circle of these differences, to bring in a compact Tory from Upper Canada so that he could win those votes, and he ultimately arranged to have the recently elected Tory mayor of Toronto, Henry Sherwood, agree to come in. And Bagot kept vainly trying to get French Canadians to join with him. But even with all of his wheeling and dealing, Bagot wasn't satisfied that he could form a government that would command support in the assembly and which would stick together. Sydenham had brought together a group of men to control the assembly, but within a year they were falling apart and couldn't agree on enough to really form a government. And given that the assembly had just passed a motion supporting the principles of responsible government, this seemed to matter more and more, even if technically Bagot could govern without such a majority. In July of 1842, Bagot's leaders in the assembly, Harrison for the reformers and Draper for the conservatives, came to him to say that nothing could be done, that he absolutely had to bring in French Canadians, not individually, but as a group. Both Harrison and especially Draper knew that there were dangers in this. Many British Canadians, not to mention Bagot's superiors back in London, had grave reservations about bringing into power a group many of whom were suspected of supporting, at least tacitly, the cause of the rebels back in 1837. How could you bring this whole group into power? But increasingly, it seemed to Bagot and to Harrison and Draper, the question worked the other way. How could you not? There was the simple matter of practicality. Because the French Canadians acted as a group in the assembly, they would guarantee to a government an incredibly useful power block in the assembly. If you brought in the French Canadians, you could actually govern. And then there was the matter of, you know, democracy, of representative government. How could government go on without adequate representation from the single largest part of the population? And so Bagot rode off to London, testing out the idea. He hedged and he hummed and he hawed, but he implied that he just didn't see how else he could get on. The real trick, he thought, was that if he asked in La Fontaine and the French Canadians, that they would then invite in Robert Baldwin. And Bagot wanted to do anything to avoid this. But it just might be that the French party would insist on it. From London, the colonial secretary wrote to say, uh, wait a second, you don't need to do this. This isn't necessary. You have other options. And really, you should follow just about any other option than bringing in a united reform party made up of the French party and Baldwin's ultra-reformers. This would, to the British, be essentially a government made up of rebels. Now, this wasn't technically true, but certainly in spirit, many in that party supported the cause, if not the means, of the last rebellion. So, that was how things stood at the end of the summer of 1842. With all the politicians returning to Kingston in early September, Sir Charles Bagot was faced with a choice. Should he convene the assembly knowing that he couldn't manage to put together a ministry that held their confidence? Or should he turn to Lafontaine with an offer to bring in the whole group of French Canadians? If he did the latter, it was much more likely that he could get a stable majority. But Lafontaine would almost certainly insist on bringing in Baldwin and the ultra-reformers. 
and Baggett had essentially been instructed not to do this. In fact, to avoid it at all costs. So, what did he do, you ask? Well, he sent for Lafontaine, hopeful that somehow, somehow, he could make it work. Better to ask forgiveness than to ask permission. Of course, in this case, he had asked permission and had been told, no, don't do it. But even so, he sent for Lafontaine. Hippolyte Lafontaine had been waiting for just this moment, ever since he decided to toy with the idea of a wider reform alliance with the Protestants from Canada West, this had been Lafontaine's hope. If he held back from cooperating with the government, he would force them to come to him and to the French Canadians as a bloc. He would not be bought off as an individual, just another vendue like any other, accepting office for personal gain. So. When he received Baggett's letter in early September, just as the assembly was about to meet, offering him a position in the government and then several more posts for others in his party, he was pleased. But he wasn't entirely pleased. Lafontaine was determined to make this particular offer benefit the whole Reform Party and to, in fact, use this opportunity to really create that United Reform Party of his dreams. When Baggett offered him several seats on the executive, Lafontaine saw this as just the opening of negotiations. He replied that this wasn't enough. Reformers needed more executive spots. He also insisted that no matter what happened, Robert Baldwin had to be on the executive as well. And so began a bargaining session that took place in letters and in person and then also eventually in the assembly itself. At first they negotiated in private, decorously. The real gentleman of the whole operation was actually Henry Draper, the moderate Tory leader who had been Sydenham and then Baggett's right-hand man. Draper had come to the conclusion that no government was possible without the French. And he also knew that any government that included the French had to also include Baldwin. And what's more, it was almost certain that Baldwin and Lafontaine would refuse to sit on an executive with a Tory like him. So what did Draper do? He offered to fall on his sword, to resign, and more than once. Let Baldwin have his seat, Draper said. It was for the benefit of the country. But that wasn't necessarily enough for Baggett. Baggett wanted to ensure that those executive members who were giving up their seats were given some kind of reward, and he wanted to write these pensions into the agreement to let LaFontaine into office. Yet this was a kind of patronage, the dispensing of the spoils of government, and Lafontaine and Baldwin held that only the colonial politicians, only the advisors to the crown, ought to dispense patronage. These were party issues and they wanted to reward party members. It was a stance both principled and deeply partisan. On the one side, they were saying that under a truly responsible government as they desired and felt should already exist, all of these decisions should be made by those who held the confidence of the people this would not be the crown. But it was also about using appointments and pensions and the rewards of office to build up a party, to make party politics a reality by controlling the benefits of power. 
They had seen governors use the spoils of power to win over individuals, to create workable majorities, and to garner support. Now, they wanted to do the same thing, but to build their own party. This particular issue was going to be around for a while, and was going to come back to hurt Lafontaine and Baldwin, in fact. But at this point in the negotiations with Bagot, the governor thought he had one last move to push Lafontaine and Baldwin into office on terms that were at least somewhat favorable to himself. Bagot decided to bring everything out into the open. He had Draper announce in the assembly, which had only just begun its meetings, all of the details of these behind the scenes negotiations. Draper and Bagot hoped that other reformers would take one look at the generous offer being made to Lafontaine and Baldwin and then pressure them to accept. Draper read out his letter, offering his own resignation so that Lafontaine could come into office. He revealed all that Bagot was willing to give to the reformers to bring them into office. Other members of the assembly gasped when it was clear what was being discussed behind closed doors. It looked for a moment like they would press Lafontaine to accept. How could you turn this down? But in the assembly, Baldwin turned the attack back on the ministry, accusing them of not fully supporting responsible government and trying to control patronage. He put forward a motion of no confidence in the present ministry. Lafontaine spoke passionately of defending the honor of his people, and it didn't help Draper and Bagot's cause that just as Lafontaine began to speak, doing so in French, even though officially the language was prescribed in public business, someone shouted out, speak in English. Lafontaine lifted himself up, wrapping his dignity around him and said that even if he felt he could express himself as well in English as he could in French, which he did not, he would still speak in French as a testament to the honor of his people. It was a moving speech by all accounts and just the kind of thing to rally his supporters around him. When the assembly broke off for the night, Bagot gave up, at least in part. He conceded the number of seats on the executive that Lafontaine had demanded. He agreed that the whole issue of pensions for the unseated executive Tories would be a decision for the next government, and Lafontaine and Baldwin could enter the ministry, each as Solicitor General for Upper Canada and Lower Canada, respectively. The one concession Bagot managed to hold on to for the moment was that two individuals, largely non-partisan office holders, would continue to sit on the executive. And this meant that, if only in name, the government wasn't a purely reform ministry. It wasn't yet complete party government, and it wasn't yet a fully responsible government. Although, Surely the limits of Bagot's power to shape the executive showed that he felt it was almost there. Indeed, Bagot said to himself, whether the doctrine of responsible government is openly acknowledged or is only tacitly acquiesced in, virtually it exists. By the 20th of September, 1842, the Canadas had their first reform ministry under Louis-Hippolyte Lafontaine and Robert Baldwin. It was a government that spanned the differences between French and English, Upper and Lower Canada. Even after the lopsided election of 1841 that so many had complained as corrupt, 
reform had still managed to come back into power to retrieve some of its fallen reputation after the rebellions. The first Lafontaine-Baldwin government was a turning point in many respects, a sort of first responsible government across religious ethnic governing coalition, of a kind anyway, that would go on to be emulated in almost every successful governing coalition that this country would ever know. It was party government of a kind, liberal government of a kind. But all of this I want to emphasize is often really only visible in hindsight. At the time, the divisions within the coalition seemed and were still pronounced. The government was held together by two big ideas, that of responsible government and cross-English-French party government. And of course, a set of relationships that bonded these ideas together in the persons especially of Lafontaine and Baldwin. Underneath the surface, many individual reformers disagreed on a host of issues. Distrust bubbled up incessantly. The French party was still made up of those like uh, Denis Benjamin Vigée and John Nielsen, who disliked the very idea of union itself. When the government actually sat down to the job of legislating, they were going to find that they disagreed on a host of issues like, for example, the religious endowments of universities, a very hot topic at the time about banking and investment and the role of capital and property. And the still very present issue of the clergy reserves in Upper and Lower Canada. Remember that one? Well, that old gem of a controversy hadn't gone away. And the new United Reform Party did not see this as one. But for the time being, late in 1842, these political differences were quiet. And Lafontaine and Baldwin could be pleased to head up a government largely, though not entirely, controlled by a united reform party. The Brits back in London were less pleased, and Bagot knew it. He had immediately written back to his superiors to explain what he had done. This was the apology bit of better to apologize than to ask for permission. And it was very much a belated request for permission because, after all, he claimed he had no other option. He blamed Lord Sydenham for a lot of the mess. Bagot claimed that Sydenham had left him with an impossible situation. Sydenham had alienated the French and had tried to build a party of moderates, which really was no party at all. If Sydenham had stuck around, the whole edifice would have crashed down around him too. Sydenham's errors had merely been hidden by what Bagot called the thin veil of success. Now, the Prime Minister Peel was furious with Bagot, and so too was the lead Tory in the House of Lords, the Duke of Wellington, who also happened to be Bagot's uncle-in-law, in fact. They thought Bagot had made a mess of it. But for the moment, they didn't ask for his resignation. They would give Bagot a chance to see if he could rescue himself from what they saw as a debacle. They had sent him to Canada to continue with the slow process of anglification, to avoid party government, and to get focused on practical matters. And what had Bagot done? He had essentially conceded to a party government built around a hazy principle and which was almost certain to prevent the further assimilation of French Canadians. The local Tories, those in Montreal, and also the upper Canadians under Alan McNabb, were equally furious. One person's success was another's disaster. In the Canadas themselves, Lafontaine and Baldwin got to work. 
their first measure of business was passing electoral reform. After suffering under the violent suppression of elections for years and feeling that the government had never sufficiently defended reformer interests at the polls, the new ministry passed a series of reforms. They shortened the time allowed for voting to just two days. They also standardized where the polling stations would be in each riding, specifying that voting would take place in the main centers of each riding, and so, you know, not in a lonely uh, single English enclave in an otherwise entirely French riding. Signs and flags were to be banned around the polls, and the cities of Montreal and Quebec would be joined up again with their more French-speaking suburbs to end the English-friendly enclaves that Sydenham had created in order to get Tories elected from those cities in the last election. But the new ministers still had to go back to the electors under the old system. At this time, and in fact, up until the end of the 1920s in Canada, anyone accepting a position as a minister had to immediately resign their constituency and ask to be re-elected as a minister. What this meant was that after each election, there was also subsequently a series of extra by-elections where those named as ministers went back to the voters and asked the voters if they wanted to re-elect them, not just as a member of the assembly, but also as a minister, as a member of the government. It was an old principle of parliamentary government. After all, members of parliament were there to hold the king's or queen's government to account. If one of their members joined the queen's government, then the voters deserved a say in determining whether they wanted this to happen or not. So what this meant is that the new ministers had to go back and get re-elected. For some, the test wasn't especially difficult, but not so for Robert Baldwin. He had to test the polls in his constituency of Hastings, whose main town was Belleville on the northern edge of Lake Ontario between Toronto and Kingston. He actually found himself facing off against his own cousin, and the election saw just the same kinds of violence on both sides as had often marred colonial elections. And what's more, this time Baldwin lost. Robert Baldwin, that is. The local electors weren't so certain about this new United Reform Ministry and the alliance with the French. Yet, Lafontaine had his own excellent idea. The generosity that Baldwin had demonstrated the past year, opening up his York constituency to the French Catholic Lafontaine, had been a splendid success. Why not now do the same thing in reverse? Why could French Canada not now elect Robert Baldwin in one of their own ridings? And so the members debated which of them would give up their own seat for Baldwin. In the end, Baldwin ran in Rimouski, a constituency made up of over 90% French Catholics. He ran unopposed and won on the 30th of January, 1843 by acclamation. It was for the reformers a brilliant success and a mirror of Lafontaine's win in York. It neatly symbolized exactly what the Lafontaine and Baldwin coalition hoped to stand for and to represent. The fly in the ointment for all of this reform success was that it depended on one man, Charles Bagot. The Governor General had taken a chance, had opted to govern with the reformers. London wasn't happy, but as long as Bagot was around, all could be well. But this was Canada in the 1840s, and we are talking about a governor general, so yes, that's right. Bagot was starting to feel ill, and not just a little bit ill. He was dying. 
By early in the winter of 1842, Bagot's health had deteriorated so much that he wrote to London to ask for a replacement. He just couldn't go on. London agreed and named a successor, but that man would not arrive until the spring. In the meantime, Lafontaine and Baldwin essentially governed unaided as Bagot's health grew worse and worse. He couldn't leave to return to England because of the bad weather over the winter, and by the time of the spring thaw, he was too sick to go anywhere. He died on the 19th of May, 1843, at the governor's residence just outside of Kingston. One more governor general went down to the most final defeat, and Lafontaine and Baldwin were going to see just how much of their success had depended on Bagot's goodwill, and would still depend on whether his replacement shared that goodwill. And here's more than a bit of a hint. He didn't. Thanks so much for listening to another installment of 1867 and all that. I hope you're enjoying our run-through of uh, Governor General's dying, it seems. New governments that are almost, but aren't quite responsible governments. And the general intrigue of Canadian politics in the 1840s. If you haven't already, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you're hearing, leave a five-star review and let me know what you think. You can get in touch via the podcast website, www.1867allthat.com. Next week, we have, of course, another Governor General, and Baldwin and Lafontaine will discover that this man wasn't going to be nearly as accommodating as old Sir Charles Bagot. A test is coming for the first Lafontaine-Baldwin ministry, and it's not clear whether they are sufficiently prepared to pass it. 1867 and All That is created, written, and narrated by me, Christopher Dummett. Sound engineering is by Rob Viscardis at Paradigm Pictures, and the whole thing exists in part with the generous support of Trent Online at Trent University. Until next time, remember, there's a lot of all that to 1867 and all that.